The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Hey, everyone. Uh, before we bring in Malika Andrews to talk about the Nets and Dan Wojcicki to talk about the Clippers' disastrous start to the playoffs, I wanted to talk a little bit about Jazz Grizzlies, specifically about the Grizzlies. Since Utah with Donovan Mitchell back is almost certainly going to win that series, and the Grizzlies are making their mark. I want to give them a little love. Of course, the highlight of Game 2 last night was John Morant's attempted murder of Rudy Gobert by dunk, which Gobert rejected to his credit. And that dunk that Ja tried it at all says everything about how audacious this dude has been since he walked into the league. This is a a point guard who in his third career game blocked Kyrie Irving at the buzzer of regulation and talked junk to everyone in earshot about it, including Kyrie, who seems to be every young player's idol. But the thing that I noticed on that dunk, even as much as a highlight, was how it came, the would-be dunk. It came off a give-and-go with Kyle Anderson. And that's a reminder of something else, that Morant has the craft of the veteran and the feel and willingness to play within a team concept. From day one, Morant has weaponized his speed as an off-ball cutter. And those cuts, they don't just open up scoring opportunities and highlight dunks for him. They're a way for John to get into the lane and kick the ball out to an open teammate. Think about this. We don't celebrate many 21-year-old stars for their off-ball cutting, especially ones with supernatural athleticism like Morant. He has a lot of heady veteran stuff to his game, and he uses it to empower teammates. He's already a master at the pass fake. He does it in the lane on the pick and roll like Manu Ginobili and Joe Ingles, tricking big guys left and right. He does it on the perimeter. He'll fake an extra pass. The whole defense will jump that way, and then he'll drive into the lane and find somebody. And he doesn't do those things just to score, even if he does score a lot. And those pass fakes are a way for him to flick up those gorgeous, gorgeous floaters that he's becoming a master at. Those pass fakes break the defense. They open up possibilities for Morant. And it's not just about that one possession. Morant's too smart for that. He knows if I pull that off once, I'm going to have you thinking, overthinking, next time I arrive at that same spot with those same options. And who knows what possibilities might emerge for him and his teammates. This is what is so appealing about Ja. He has never, not for one second, Played like someone who cares one iota about being the face of the Grizzlies or controlling the team, about making the Grizzlies belong to him somehow. And you talk to people within the Grizzlies and they say he doesn't carry himself like that either. I've written a lot over the last couple of years about being all in on Morant as a tentpole star for Memphis. And that, that general attitude is a lot of why I'm all in like that. The best franchise stars make their teammates want to play harder, want to play for each other, want to play for their star. Morant is going to be that kind of franchise star. That doesn't mean he's perfect, obviously. He has a long way to go on defense. So do most young stars who carry a huge burden on offense. His stance is too upright. The Grizzlies hide him on non-threatening guys like Royce O'Neal a lot in this series. And Utah tore the Grizzlies up on the pick and roll in game two to the point that they had poor Jonas Valanciunas trying to blitz Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell because nothing else was working. And of course, the other big area of Morant to improve is his jumper. Teams are ducking way under picks and daring him to shoot. All that, we see that. We've seen that with lots of young guards. You know what? Moran has hit about 38% of his last 153s. That's a good sign. He looks confident, or at least not not confident. I'd bet on John Morant's jumper getting good enough. I'd bet on Moran in general. Are the Grizzlies going to win a title someday with John Moran? Who knows? Moran is just 6'3". Most of the last 30 years have been dominated by the apex predator wings. That A good portion of that is, of course, two players, Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Jaron Jackson Jr. is Morant's co-star, and and he has struggled a bit to find his place as a medium-usage stretch power forward next to Valanciunas and Morant, and sometimes a backup center. 
he sometimes feels like an afterthought. And that's not that unusual for in-between kind of big men who play a lot of power forward. It's happening to John Collins in Atlanta. You know, he's a sideshow to the Clint Capella, Trey Young pick and roll. He has 12 points in two games against the Knicks in what is a super fun first-round series. He had zero in game two. Hell, it even happens to Anthony Davis sometimes. Now, Davis is obviously in another stratosphere from these guys as a post player, pick and roll threat, all of that. And he's also obviously one of the five or six best defensive players alive. So he's always impacting the game somehow, even if he drifts a little bit on offense. We don't even know what position Jaron Jackson Jr. is best at on defense yet, but these are all high-class problems. Memphis is a small market, non-glamour city. Those teams don't get to pick their superstars, their foundational players, from the free agency superstar grocery store. Multiple top 10 players in their primes do not and have not teamed up to go to those kinds of markets. You take what you can get in the draft, what the lottery gods give you, and you make it work. The Jazz are kind of a fitting opponent in that sense. If you created two franchise stars in a lab, you probably would not create a 6-1 hybrid scoring guard and a 7-foot center with no shooting range at all and minimal ball skills. But the Jazz didn't get to shop at the Superstar Grocery Store. The guy who was their franchise star, allegedly, Gordon Hayward, he left for Boston. So they drafted Donovan Mitchell. They stole Rudy Gobert at the end of the first round. And now they're left to do their best to make it work around them. The Grizzlies are going to have to do the same thing with John Brandt and Jaron Jackson Jr., whatever else they get. And by the way, <laughs> they've gotten quite a lot. Mike Conley and Marcus Gasol were not like late 20s in their prime super-duper stars when the Grizzlies cut bait on them. They were both way past their primes. And the Grizz still got what looks now like a lot of value for them. Conley turned into, listen to this, Grayson Allen, Jay Crowder, two first-round picks, one of which turned into Brandon Clark indirectly. And they got a giant trade exception in the Conley deal, which they used to absorb Andre Godala, longtime Memphis Grizzly, Andre Godala, and another first-round pick from the Warriors. They got the draft pick that became Desmond Bain in a funky three-team trade with Boston and Portland. DeAnthony Melton came in a salary dump with Phoenix. Kyle Anderson looks underpaid now. All good stuff on the margins. They turned Marcus Sewell with a year and change left on his deal into Jonas Valanciunas and three second-round picks. Jonas, by the way, is one of my favorite stories in the entire NBA. David Gale, who is a former assistant for the Raptors, has been kicking butt in Europe the last few years. He told me a story once about going out to eat with young JV in Toronto and being in awe of how much JV ate at a steakhouse. When they left, this is according to David, and Jonas didn't exactly dispute this, Valentunas called a local pizza place and ordered two pizzas he could pick up on the way home for a second dinner. So suffice it to say the Raptors wondered when Valentunas would really start taking his conditioning seriously, even though he always took basketball seriously, always worked his butt off at practice, after practice, all that. Finally, in the summer of 2014, after Masai Ujiri, who runs the Raptors, challenged him, Valanciunas ditched all his junk food and did two days all summer with David Gale in Los Angeles. And at the end of the summer, this is one of my favorite Jonas stories. They went out to Nobu, Nobu, of course, for some fancy sushi and to celebrate a summer of good work. And Jonas said, I'm having beer. Can't stop me from having beer. And I also want edamame. And here's the rule, Coach Gale. For every order of edamame we get, we're drinking a beer. David Gale remembers five orders of edamame and five beers and probably doesn't remember much else from the night from that night in L.A. with Jonas. And Jonas has gotten better steadily since then. And the best part of all of it is that with the exception of an occasional slow-motion three-pointer, he has not improved by changing his game wholesale or becoming this hip stretch five that everyone wants. He doesn't even have the ability to do that, really. He just became the very best version of himself, an interior masher who is tireless on the glass and works hard on defense, even though he's not the fastest dude. One of the joys of this season and of these Grizzlies has been watching Jonas Valanciunas just beat the hell out of people 
all game long. Anyway, the Grizzlies rebuild hasn't been perfect, obviously. No one does perfectly in the NBA. They traded a lot in talent and cap space for Justice Winslow, who has been injured mostly and really bad when healthy and is really not even in the rotation now. Imagine if this team still had Jay Crowder, who was in that Justice Winslow's deal. But mistakes happen to every front office. Maybe that was a big one. Maybe the cap space they sacrificed wouldn't have yielded anything meaningful anyway. I tend to think it was kind of a smaller one, medium at worst, totally recoverable. Anyway, Utah is almost certainly going to win this series, but the Grizzlies have something going, and it starts with Ja Morant, one of the league's best young stars. Now let's transition into Malika Andrews on the Nets, and I just want to clarify this. Malika and I talk a little bit about the Knicks fans uh, taunting Trey Young and fan behavior in general. We did not, or I did not at least know, that there was someone allegedly spit toward Trey Young during the game. So obviously don't do that. Don't throw popcorn at players. It's not that hard to just boo and have fun. Let's get on with the podcast. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a beautiful Thursday morning where the NBA playoffs are rolling right along and almost no team is rolling as easily as the Brooklyn Nets. And that made me want to talk to our woman on the Brooklyn Nets beat among many beats, including Good Morning America. Good Morning America's <laughs> Malika Andrews. How are you? You're basically Robin Roberts' best friend. And I think you are you the next Michael Strahan? I don't know. What are you? You know, I'm not going to correct you if you want to call me the Gail King to Robin Roberts's Oprah. I, I won't say no. I won't say that's incorrect. I'm great. I'm in steamy, sweaty Manhattan and oh, I miss the Nets it. are I miss rolling. It so much. See, it's nothing the best. is <laughs> I always said if if the gods were really cruel and they and they punished you with your own personal version of hell, mine would be just a subway platform on mm. a 95 degree day in August and the train <laughs> the train is just never coming. That, I that's will one it. up you. It's the it is the you get on the train, it's 95 degrees, the AC is working, it comes to a screeching halt and they say we're gonna be here for a while and all of a sudden it shuts off and then your face is in like somebody else's armpit. That's my personal version. So of when, when that happens, so as someone who lived in Queens Sometimes the seven train would get stuck underwater. Now mm. that wouldn't bother that wouldn't bother me. But are you a not a underwater? Do you get extra freaked out or no? Some people get extra freaked out. I work hard not to think about it, and so usually when I'm listening to the low post on my subway rides, then I'm yeah. fine. But when I'm underground and your your connection crackles and it's like, yeah, never mind. We're going to take away your podcast and all you have is your own dark thoughts. That's when I start thinking about the possibility of me drowning. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow, that guy's really <laughs> But I'm Let's also the person who looks for the exits in arenas in case something bad happens. So maybe I'm I'm the worst case scenario or <laughs> I'm a little anxious now. Okay, let's talk about the Nets because the Nets-Celtics series has, has largely been a bummer. My entire game notes for the fourth quarter of game two, I just looked it up, it says 4Q garbage time. That's it. That's the end of notes. There's nothing else. Uh, the Nets have outscored the Celtics by 33 points through two mm -hmm. games. This looks like a complete mismatch. Obviously, Jalen Brown's not playing. That would right. be a game changer. But still, these are must-see TV because we saw the big three play 202 minutes, I think, over eight games in the regular season. And now we're seeing them play a lot together sure. with real with real stakes. And and, and maybe the most important question to, to, to – like we have very few mysteries when we get to the playoffs. This is right. not quite a mystery, mm -hmm. but it's, it's an interesting question. So like what's the I, – I know you can't be around the team as we would normally be around the team, but 
they seem to just be kind of hopping and everything seems to be good. What's the takeaway from two playoff games? Yeah, well, in addition to those 200 and change minutes being the only ones that the big three played, and that included that crazy game against Toronto where Kevin Durant was in and out and in and out of that lineup with health and safety protocols, they, until the playoffs, that potent lineup that we expect, probably I expect to see a lot of the big three alongside Joe Harris and Blake Griffin, they hadn't started that lineup until game one of the playoffs. And now obviously it's been their starting lineup twice. And Nick Claxton, who has emerged as one of the uh, bigs that they like to get in the game, he hadn't played minutes with, with those three all that much. So those were the two kind of mysteries I was looking at. It seems like, Zach, winning cures everything, right? So earlier on in the season, you'd hear much more rumblings of, oh, well, this might be going on with the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, you know, Kyrie, you know, he had that hiatus for two weeks. This is kind of an underlying thing that's going on, right? And now it seems sort of like they've gotten in a groove and they're rolling. And one, I I think, you know, it's the playoffs. It's lock in time. These guys have experience there. Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Kevin Durant, they know about winning. They know a little something about that and what that takes, what it takes to block out the noise. But the other thing, Zach, that I think uh, has kind of come to fruition here is Steve Nash has gotten more comfortable as the head coach. I remember early on in the season, Uh, when Kyrie Irving was not talking to reporters, when he posted that, I don't talk to Pond's message early on in the season, right? Remember that? Fun times. Um, when he posted hey, hey, that look, message, the, the, the pawns are an important part of the chess. You can't play chess without you the pawns. Can't play, I'm watching Queen's Gambit right now. There, there are some very astute plays that include pawns. Um, hey, look, but- I don't know. Actually, I'm an embarrassing admission. I don't know how to play chess. I would like to play chess. That show made me want to play chess. Yeah. If chess players are that cool and attractive and exciting, like I want to be all in on on the chess scene. I just yeah. think you got a guy carrying around a knife all the time. You got yeah, late you know, the drinking pill going on. At like five is a little bit, you know, like mm, but like the rest of it sounds cool. I I will admit I can't play chess either. So that's I Scrabble is my game. I'm a words person, not a yeah. That's that's how I think. But when uh, that happened. Um, so this was an endorsement for Queen's Gambit. When that happened, I remember I asked Steve Nash about whether or not he'd had a conversation with Kyrie about it, whether or not he'd addressed it. And he told me that he hadn't. And he said maybe if he was farther along in his relationship with these players as a head coach, then maybe he would have. And so over the course of the season, I've seen Steve Nash become more comfortable in not just the role of I was a former player and so I can relate on that level and I'm the cool coach, but he's also stepped into being the coach. And I think that all of those combination of factors together has led to a more more harmony there. And man, they're winning. What do they have to, you know, what can be going wrong, right? Um, so let's talk about a couple of on-court things from mm-hmm. the Celtics series so far. I think the thing everybody wants to talk about is that the Nets have been really good defensively. And I, you know, cool. That's it's two games against Boston. Like I'm not that excited about it. Um, Kemba Walker clearly just is at a place where he can't impact the game. He can't get into the paint, knifing into the paint. And they're not uh, against a team that switches a lot. He doesn't get those pick right. and roll drop coverages that he just eats up. We saw that with Toronto last year when they went box and one, and they and all of a sudden he didn't have Marcus Sol dropping back or Serge Ibaka driving back. He, he wasn't as effective. So the defense has been good. Interestingly, it's been not good with Blake Griffin on the floor and Mm. impenetrable with Blake Griffin on the bench. And I think the only real answer Boston has had so far is going at Blake on switches with Tatum and Kemba sometimes. But I'll tell you what I've been impressed by. Two things. Number one, 
the Nets have, we know they're going to switch, right? We just, mm-hmm. that's what they're going to do. They're going to switch Kyrie Irving onto Tristan Thompson. They're going to switch into size mismatches of eight inches to a foot and 50 pounds <laughs> to 100 pounds. When that happens, their hands have been so active mm-hmm. in the paint. Helpers are ready. They're getting deflections. Those guys are fighting with a size disadvantage, and they're getting knockaways and steals and all that. And the second thing, and this is almost more important to me, and it's it's what made the Rockets with James Harden, ironically, it's what turned them from a passable defensive team into a really good one. And I don't think, to answer everyone's question, no, I do not think the Nets are going to be a really good defensive team. I don't think <laughs> All they're going to be. the qualifier. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the only thing is, can they be okay to good? Hmm. Good. I think they can be good, maybe. But this was the, this is the hallmark. When you don't just switch everything, when mm. you when you decline to switch, when the team is trying to bait you into switching or situations where you shouldn't switch. So here's an example. Tatum comes up to set a screen for Kemba Walker in game two and slips out of it without even setting it. He doesn't even do it. That's, that's a play that the Celtics are trying to trick you into switching and slip it. The Nets read it and don't switch. When Robert Williams has the ball up high and two of Boston stars screen for each other and do their little right. dance and, and then you know starburst out, Right. The Nets are not switching that automatically. And when they shouldn't switch, they're reading it together and not switching. And ironically, one of the hallmarks of great switching defenses is knowing when not to switch. Yeah. And the Nets have been doing that really well. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Um, the Nets have talked about making sure they're switching in the right scenarios because they know that that is an advantage that they have. And so it's something that in game one, actually, both Blake Griffin and Joe Harris talked about needing to figure that out a little bit, making sure they're not actually switching themselves into mismatches that disadvantage them. They said they were still trying to figure that out. In game two, that's where we kind of saw them get rolling. But what's been interesting and what I was curious to ask you about as well is how much of the Nets defense do you think the tone is set predicates off of what Kevin Durant is able to do? Yeah, he's I've said, you know, I mean, I've said lots of people said he's the best player on the team, even even when Harden was getting. (laughs) Yeah, even when even when Harden was getting the MVP buzz when KD was out, Kevin Durant's the best player on the team. Sure. And the reason he's the best player on the team is because Kyrie Irving and James Harden are on their best days, average defensive players who don't inflict harm on your team on their worst days. They're worse than that. Let's just be nice. I'm in a positive (laughs) mood today. I'm going to be nice. Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant in his best seasons has gotten all defense talk, right? He had the year where he averaged a couple of shot blocks a game, all that. And if you're going to have a switching defense that's going to have any weak links, you better have a strong link. And there are few links stronger than a seven-foot guy who can run like a guard, jump like a center, and block shots at the rim. And I think he's, if not at peak Golden State all defense level Mm -hmm. or, you know, Oklahoma City in 2016 where they almost beat the Warriors and he was just flying everywhere. And the Warriors were like so scared of all the shot blocking that they were like freaked out and passing up layups and all that. Right. He's he's pretty damn close to that. Right. Well, so I, I was curious, so I looked it up this morning. I I don't love defensive win shares as a metric. I just I think it favors bigs. I didn't blah, 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 blah. But I was curious. So I'm, I I'm already I'm already asleep. I'm already <laughs> asleep. Get on get on with I it quickly. It I looked it up. 
Kevin Durant, 27 in the playoffs, don't really care because the intangibles. I think he is the, when I'm taking the temperature, right, of the Nets defense, when he is 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 playing well, when he is active and his hands are up, when he is doing all the little things, I watch Joe Harris, uh, you know, his, his levels raise. He raises everyone else around him. So... In this series, you know, I think it's it's been interesting to see Kevin Durant when he's asked about it, right? He says, well, it's the playoffs. I think everyone's defense do, tunes in, gets better in the playoffs. But this is where I am curious to see when they are going up against, you know, whether it is right now, it looks like the, the Bucks, but, you know, I never count out Jimmy Butler. Kevin Durant is who I'm watching right against those types of better than the Celtics this year. They're hurt. It's just, it's just the way it is. When I'm looking at those long types of players like Giannis Antetokounmpo, like that's what I can't wait for. That's what I want to see. Well, and I think I got if the buck, if the bucks <laughs> beat, yeah, I don't want to hear about any works and schnorps and, <laughs> schnorps. and um, schnippums. Yeah. I don't know what those are. Um, if Work the bucks beat Miami and, I, and I'm with you, by the way, I don't, Miami could be down 3-0 and by 20 in the second half of game four. Not I'll say there's still up. a chance. <laughs> um, if that happens, I, I am interested in, you know, are the Nets going to switch mm. Kyrie onto Giannis? Are they going to are they going to stay? Are they gonna, are they going to just stay in in such switch everything mode? So you're that they're willing for to, chaos. <laughs> that, that they're willing to switch switch so many things, but um, yeah, I mean that that could be an interesting matchup offensively. You know, what's been interesting to me about this team, and I'm glad you mentioned Joe Harris because he's uh, obviously turned into a, a fireball in Best game two. in the league this year. The, the Celtics came into this series, and this is why I've loved the Nets since they got Harden, and they've been my pick to win the championship since they got Harden. The Celtics came into this series, hey, look, we're at a disadvantage. Talent disadvantage, depth disadvantage. Mm-hmm. But we're not a shoe and socks disadvantage, according to Tristan no, Thompson. <laughs> that's right. So, so yes, both Tristan Thompson and Scotty Brooks, this is yeah. a really important issue. <laughs> this is one of the five most important things that's happened in the playoffs. They both said the other team, big favorite X, puts their socks on the same way that we do. I never, I never, I thought it was pants. I thought you put your pants on. Well, I've never heard so many people talk about socks. Well, and not to be like, well, actually, with my finger raised in the air, but well, actually, I'm not sure Kyrie Irving puts his socks and shoes on the same as Tristan Thompson does because he. I've noticed he doesn't always wear NBA socks. Sometimes he wears not NBA regulation. So maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the change. Maybe that's what needs to happen. Are you wearing the socks or are the socks wearing you? Ooh. Okay, anyway. No, so anyway. <laughs> so you know what I've actually thought of? I want to sit down and I want to try to put two socks on at exactly the same time so that I can say I put my socks on differently than everybody else. Is that I guess that's possible, right? Like it, yeah. why would that not be possible? You why just have to be it a seems extra. like it Express. seems like it would be faster, actually, if you could if you could master that. And we know Nets like speed, so maybe that's the key. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so Boston comes into this series, and they're like, we're at a talent disadvantage. We're going to switch a lot, too. And mm. we're going to force you guys to play in the mud. We're going to force you guys to play one-on-one. And the Nets are like, oh, this is why we have James Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant. Because when teams force us to play one-on-one, we have, I don't know, three of the five best one-on-one players on the earth, and we're just going to torch you every time there's any kind of mismatch, and sometimes even when there's not. Even mm-hmm. when there's like Jabari Parker on Kevin Durant, which is not a size mismatch, it is a talent mismatch. And and they're just getting almost whatever they want, and that's why 
when the game bogs down, that's why Milwaukee's an interesting matchup to me because with Middleton, Holiday, and Giannis, they have three, and Tucker throw him in. They have three or four elite one-on-one defenders. That's why they're an interesting matchup. I'm just not sure that there's really any great answer to any three of these guys going one-on-one with shooting around them. So, you know, yes, I don't I don't think there is necessarily an answer to that. Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, and Giannis one, two, three in defense. That's a good that that's about as good as the answer as you can get. And why I'm so sad Jalen Brown is out because Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Jason Tatum is yeah, about as good an answer as you can get. Right. And that and that's interesting. You know, it's it's in game one, that one-on-one wasn't necessarily working in the way that they wanted to, just because they weren't hitting shots, right? And their message was, well, in game two, we're not gonna not hit shots. And so this is going to happen. But the interesting part about also, you know, in in game two, in game one, the big three combined for I think eighty two points in order to win that game, right? In in game two, you have Joe Harris going off, and so when Joe Harris is going off, creating that space and demanding that defensive attention, then it's almost actually that that aids the one on one game of the big three, right? Because you're going to have to throw looks at him, and then when you're paying so much attention to the individual offensive then you're going to get what the nets like is when the extra attention gets paid when they get to exploit those sorts of matchups and then they get to do something just a little bit surprising at the end just a little bit and make one play and they're like you think they're going to go one-on-one you think that's going to happen and then bang they pass it out you know kick it out to the to the wing kick it out here kick it out there and then that's where joe harris is waiting and that's when they get uh, you know to quote james harden that's really the scary hours Oh, that's a good quote. Uh, yeah, Joe Harris, I'm glad that Steve Nash and his staff put a line in the sand and said, Joe Harris is starting, starting. for the team. Right. I don't I don't care what anyone else might prefer. Joe Harris is a starter on this team. We and I really this man. We paid yeah. this man. He's starting. And then his play, he's starting. The end. <laughs> and I also like that they have made Joe Harris a critical co-partner on the James Harden and the bench lineups because I think that makes a ton of sense to play Joe and James together with, I think it's Claxton, Green, and Shamit right now, mm-hmm. just load up shooting around James when Kyrie and Kevin Durant are resting. I think that's really smart. So you just hinted at it. I asked you before the podcast, I said, the Nets had two of my favorite plays of their season, and actually it's three in game two. Can you guess what one of them was? Because I don't want to put you completely on the spot. And you <laughs> guessed what one of them was right off the bat. So, And it's kind of obvious, but still, you guessed it pretty fast. So tell the people what it was. Well, it, it was the J- James Harden. It was, again, we talked about it. It looks like he might be going one-on-one when he's dribbling. He pulls out. It almost looks like he's going to shoot. Swing to Kyrie. Back to a cutting James. Dish to Blake. Ends with a dunk. It's like, wh- what's the answer to that? What's well, the answer so to that? It, was, it was James Harden <laughs> with Robert Williams on him on a switch. Mm. And so that's exactly what you think is a step back. A step back. Yeah, Robert Williams at nine, almost had a triple-double of blocks in the first game. Uh, so you think, here's the step back three, or here's the drive. And instead, he kicks it to Kyrie. And then instead of stopping and letting Kyrie cook, he cuts. Kyrie gives him the ball. Robert Williams is like, oh, shit, I'm burned. And James Harden draws help, lobs to Blake Dunk. You said you were there. You said the Barclays Center was electric. 
I was not there, and I don't believe you, Malika Andrews, because the Barclays Center has never been electric for a basketball game, so tell me that I'm wrong. This is the same asterisk that applies to good defense for the Nets. It's electric for Barclays Center. It's, I mean, you know, they, they, they're saying they have 14,000 give-or-take fans. Madison Square Garden said they had 15,000 game one and 16,000 game two, so that, that isn't that many more fans. I was in Madison Square Garden on what day was that Wednesday yeah Wednesday days or what are days Wednesday night did not compare could not compare uh, when you walk outside afterwards fans are chanting we want Brooklyn which like okay Knicks fans like first of all sure. they were also chanting Trey Young's balding is that right <laughs> they oh gosh Zach they handed out pamphlets at the door to fans saying tonight's chant is Trey Young is balding hey look when you tell when you tell MSG it's quiet as f in here, and you shush them. You're inviting all of it. Well, and also, Mike Breen on the telecast. You probably weren't listening to this. I was. Listen- I was watching no. the Knicks broadcast. Yeah. Mike Breen actually sort of tisk tisk the fans for the fu Trey Young chant and said, oh. "We're we're better than that. Let's get more creative." And then when they chanted <laughs> Trey Young's balding, Mike Breen tongue in cheek was like. That's better. Doom's <laughs> Hall of Famer Mike Breen, like the the greatest of all time. So what's what's funny is they turned up the music every time that they started chanting F Trey Young. They would turn the music up to try to drown out those tra- chants, the in-game arena folks. So yes, Barclays Center, I, I I will draw a line in the sand. Barclays Center is cooler. When I look at the celebrities that show up courtside, when I look, it's cooler. But it's all still it's still like the cool alternative. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, I'm sorry. Whoa. It is. It's cooler. That is that's a scorcher. It so is. I want you to get specific now. Who are the celebrities that are showing up at Brooklyn games that make it cooler? So I think that Madison Square Garden, historic. It is Eden. It is endearing in the fact that it is like a little bit schluggy, a little bit, uh, you know, I like that the- A little bit what? Schluggy, it's a little icky. It's a little like the building sweats. It's a little, the food isn't, you know, it's, 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 this is my take. The the games that have gone down in there, the concerts that have taken place in there, blah, 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 blah. Historically, nothing touches Madison Square Garden. The Knicks still, you know, I'm walking around New York City, in terms of fan ratio, in especially in Manhattan, the Knicks run the town. That being said, when you go to Barclays, it's like the sleek black, the theater lighting. You see Beyonce sitting courtside. It's like, well, uh, uh, Travis Scott sitting courtside. When I go to Madison Square Garden, like the actor who plays Elliot Stabler, I love Law & Order SVU, but like, that's not Beyonce. That's not Travis Scott. It's the young, cool, hip, diverse. That's Brooklyn. It just is. Okay. That's a, you, made, you made a cogent argument. I just wanted a cogent argument and I got one. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's. 
macy's.com slash gift finder today that's macy's.com slash gift finder you can now stream the most mlb games on direct tv without a satellite dish yes catch the clutch hits strikeouts grand salamis web gems with nothing on your roof so who's there up there whether it's roofers santa birds old-timey chimney sweeps moody teenagers thrill-seeking raccoons watch out for them you name it they won't find a satellite dish but you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Can I tell you one of my other favorite plays from, from game, uh, game two? So there are two. There are two. Here's the nerd one. Okay, <laughs> the nerd one is this. This is what I want to see from Brooklyn. Blake Griffin has the ball on the left wing. Okay, mm-hmm. that's cool. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harden and Kyrie screen for each other off the mm-hmm. ball. So there's a split action between two of the best one-on-one players in the world. Yep. On the other side of the floor, on the right side of the floor, Durant is setting a flare screen for Joe Harris. Mm. So all four of these dangerous players are doing stuff. Which, when that happens, you're dead. And so here's what happens. Harden and Kyrie do their screening action. The Celtics basically collapse into a puddle of uncertainty. Kyrie gets the ball with nobody on him. Blows by a defender. I think it was Fournier. Rushing like, oh my god, I gotta close out on Kyrie. And lays the ball in. That, more of that, is how the Nets win the championship. More of that. Can I just say, one of the things that I have enjoyed... Yes. All right. Cheap answer. Yeah. Blake Griffin proving he can still dunk. He told me in his first interview when he came here, you know, I promise I still can. He delivered on that promise. Blake Griffin, the facilitator, has been one of the more interesting things that I have seen from him since he has joined the Nets. Now, Blake Griffin, the defender, is going to be a little bit of a wild card and has had rough moments in this series to the point that at some point in game two, the Nets did the thing when Blake's guy was going to go up and screen for Tatum or Kemba, and they pulled Blake out of it and said, no, no, someone else is going to is going to take your guy on the way up. The other lineup that we should talk about is the starting lineup, but with Jeff Green at center. Sure, yeah. Because I wonder, now against Philly, that's a little problematic. Right. Against Milwaukee, that's pretty interesting, although Brooke Lopez has, has gone back to his roots as an interior scorer. That lineup was actually the third most played lineup for the Nets this year. Here's the here's how they the Nets had season like 167. Uh-huh. <laughs> 76 minutes. 76 minutes. They played in seven games together, and they were the third most played lineup in a 72-game season for the Brooklyn Nets. They, set a they are now franchise. They are now plus 38 in 81 minutes for the season. I think that's a really dynamic lineup with Jeff Green, who's been sensational for them. But here's my other fair play. Harden gets Time Lord again on a switch. And he's doing a little dance. That's nickname. Doing a little dance. Mm-hmm. Then he calls up Shamit, who's got Kemba Walker on him. Or maybe it was Tristan. I think I think Harden had Tristan Thompson. It doesn't matter. A large, a much larger person. Calls up Shamit who, you know, has been in and out of everyone's good graces in Brooklyn this year, let's say, okay? Calls up Shamit, who's got Kemba Walker on him. They switch again. So Harden's got Kemba Walker, which is barbecue chicken for James Harden with the size advantage. And he's dancing. And then he looks over and he sees Landry Shamit in the right corner with Tristan Thompson on him. And is like, you know what, kid? Here you go. You <laughs> take it. I'm going to reward you. You take it. And Landry Shamit takes it. Beats Tristan Thompson, reverse layup. And, like, it's a stupid little thing, 
But I really liked that Harden gave Landry Shamit a little piece of meat and was like, you know what? Up and down season, we're going to need you. You're playing good. Have some freaking fun. <laughs> and Shamit's talked about how much he likes playing with James. When he's on the floor, he likes to be on the floor with James. That's a... That's an interesting one. Yes, I'm I'm liking seeing your inner nerd come out on the ones you're like, oh, I think this could be interesting in the future, and this is a play we're going to need later. That are one of the ones, one of the plays that I liked in the third quarter. Blake Griffin grabs this offensive board, which uh, that's been you know offensive boards for the Nets in the regular season were not always uh, easy to come by. Rebounding in general, like yeah. the, even in this series, the Celtics are hurting them on on the offensive glass. Like that's that the gang rebounding is going to be maybe the make or break thing about Brooklyn. And so seeing him kind of take ownership of that, you know, two hands on the ball, throwing his elbows, like, no, 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 this is mine. Hook pass out to Kyrie Irving on the perimeter, swing Kevin Durant, who had a window to take that three. Instead, he drives and takes it all the way to the rack. And why I liked that play is because when I'm looking again, I can't help it. I need to stop. I need to be do what the, what Kevin Durant and the players say that they do and stay in the, this series and not look ahead to who the potential next matchup could be. Da 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 da. Um, but maybe I'm. By the this. by the way, they're all looking ahead. I don't uh, care yeah, what right. all the players and coaches so, say. They're all looking. They're all sure. Looking ahead. So that type of play against someone like Mo- the again the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm just like that. That's it. That's the type of play when you have to take it take it all the way when you have to work for those boards, like that's going to be a winning recipe against a team like that. And, you know, that series, if it happens, is going to be a whale of a series. The Sixers have looked fantastic so far against the Wizards. So I'm a little hesitant to say that I would pick the winner of Bucks Nets over Philadelphia, but I I think I would. I haven't thought about it quite enough, quite enough yet. Um, Well, Philly, yeah. They're good, and we know you know they have the quote unquote analytically easiest path, right? So, it, oh, if they don't make the conference finals, it's a it's something horrible. Either someone <laughs> has gotten injured, or they have failed horribly, and there yep. needs to be like an internal reckoning. No offense to the Hawks and the Knicks, who are putting up, by the way, a whale of a series. That is a super fun. Fantastic! Series. I can't wait to watch the rest of it. I I'm interested to see you know again, and I, I really am stressing this because I just don't believe the Heat are going to roll over. I just don't. Uh, I, I have faith that it, it, the, the Bucks very well may. They have the talent. They have the balanced roster more so. You know, I watched the Bucks a whole lot in the last two years, more so maybe than I've seen in the last two years, in large part because of Drew Holiday. I really like the addition of Bryn Forbes and P.J. Tucker. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not counting out Milwaukee, uh, the Miami, but I'm also not counting against the Bucks if that's a nice wishy-washy answer for you. But – I just think that Bucks, Brooklyn, especially because of the length of Giannis versus Kevin Durant, is just, you know, it's going to be the intrigue of Hawks Knicks with the stakes that much higher. It would also just be this sort of irresistible contrast in big threes from like these three blue blood top three picks mm-hmm. to the Bucks big three, which is like this unknown dude from Greece who was what the fifteenth pick in the draft. 15. Drew Holiday, perpetually the most underrated player in the league, seventeenth pick, I believe, and then Chris Middleton, who was a second round pick, and like the other guy in the Brandon Knight, Brandon Jennings trade from yep. ages ago is now that that, that big dude. three. But look, uh you've got to go. Steve Nash has a practice zoom. Coming up, I just think this team. Look, they're gonna. This is not the. It's great that they look great against Boston. It doesn't really matter. They're gonna. They're gonna face better competition. We we have to see how this team 
are they front runners or how do they react when they get punched in the face for the first time when it really matters? But it's just much watch television right now right. because of, of those three and they look great so far. There's no, there's just no argument. Well, here's the, the question that I will ask on my, on my way out. Do you think that the Nets could have, should have, would have benefited from a first round punch in the mouth or is this good before that punch potentially comes with all due respect to Boston? I don't think, I don't think it matters. I just think they need some time to get to, to play together and figure it out. That's what I think. Um, and if Boston can't, I mean, Boston was competitive in game one. It never felt threatening, but they were competitive. Um, it's going to come one way or another, whether it happens now or later. I, I, it, that doesn't really they, – they don't strike me as the kind of team that needs that in any particular time. But we'll see. All right, Malika, it's always good to see you. I can't wait to see you in person. I'm going to start traveling again soon, so you might yeah. see you might see me in person. But um, everyone can see Malika on – I'm assuming Good Morning America regularly. <laughs> are, you in the, are you in the next John Wick or something? I mean, what, what else can we promote? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just I'm coming to a Oscars. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, yes, read on. I, I'm still. I still. I'm like. You know I know what? everyone Reading. knows where you keep yeah, <laughs> reading. All right, Malika. Thank you. Continued up the great work. We're always good to see you. Thanks so much, Zach. I appreciate you. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus. Their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Welp. It's time now to talk about the Clippers. And I wanted to talk to somebody who has lived in Los Angeles for a long time, covered the Clippers for a long time, really has experienced the one-of-a-kind, really, in sports Clippers experience. And I and I and so I reached out to my friend Dan Wojcicki from the LA Times. He's one of the great, pleasant guys to see around the beat. I haven't seen you in a long time. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Zach. I'm always appreciative of running into you because you always give me great parenting advice like whatever you do, just have one beer before you go to bed. I think you told me that about being a dad and it was good advice. Yeah, I'm like a C plus dad. You know, like if if that's what you're aiming for. It's hard to be an A dad covering the NBA. I'll be a C plus. So let's review. Let's review some facts here, Dan. Okay. The Clippers traded Shea Gildas Alexander, Mm -hmm. Danilo Gallinari. Five first round picks and With some swaps, swaps yeah. some yeah. swaps for Paul George and effectively Kawhi Leonard. Um, they didn't win the championship last year when I picked them to win the championship, and boy, howdy, was I wrong about that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they flamed out completely against the Denver Nuggets, losing three increasingly inexplicable games, and the last one a just all time, not even lay down and die 
just sort of start quivering incoherently on the basketball court. Then uh, they re-signed Paul George to a four-year something huge. I don't have it in front of me. 190, 160, 170. An enormous amount of money extension. Yep. Kawhi Leonard is a free agent to be. They tanked the last two games of the season. Let me just make sure I get this right. They tanked the last two games against of the season, including against the Oklahoma City Thunder, who and the, are and also the Houston, tanking. Zach, and the Houston Rockets, by the way. A performance so incredible that I had more than one person around the league, maybe more than six people around the league, say that I should maybe reconsider my coach of the year vote and award Ty Lue for an all-time <laughs> end-of-season tanking experience. Ty Lue's a great coach. He, he has can win it on his own. Yeah. And they did that in part to avoid the Lakers and in part because they did not really seem to fear the Dallas Mavericks. Well, lo and behold, they are now down 2-0. They have given up an offensive rating to Luka and the Mavs of about 942 points per 100 possessions. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked that. It's approximate. And they are staring into an absolute organizational abyss of pain with absolutely no end in sight if they don't turn their strong. Because I got to tell you, even if Kawhi resigns, which we'll talk about, those guys ain't getting any younger. Like the championship window ain't getting wider and wider. And as you know, they have no picks, no trade ammunition, no nothing. So, Dan, <laughs> I just – I don't even know what my question is. Like how, yeah. why, what, mm-hmm. where – I don't even care where you start. Like what? what is going on? How is this okay. happening to the Clippers? Okay, so I think we should start with this first, Zach. I think we stumbled onto your spinoff podcast name, Lo and Behold. Should have been a uh, consideration, oh. by the way, um, just in case if uh, you ever need to, to spin, spin off your own property. Um, how and why? Man, that's a good question. I, I So when you first texted me uh, to see if I want to talk to you about this, I, I think my response was, I, it's it's like the crazy thing about the Clippers is, is like they don't just play the team that's in front of them. Like they are playing, um, you know, decades of craziness, too. And like you do, like I don't believe in jinxes. I don't believe in curses. Like I don't think that stuff like actively causes teams to lose. I'll tell um, you, I'm starting to reconsider, Dan. <laughs> starting but, to reconsider. But, but I do think there is a weight that comes with the fact that you know that your failure will be so gleefully enjoyed by everybody else as like that you will you will hit the role that everybody expects from you. I, the ways that I would best describe it are when, when I was covering the Clippers and uh, that famous game six against Houston, the the Corey Brewer, Josh Smith, three-point bonanza, um, which also famously led to the Clippers then signing Josh Smith, which led to Josh Smith and then Mike Woodson um, getting in a locker room kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. Uh, yes. Um, very exciting. Uh, that game, so they're up, what, like 20 or 19 or something like that in the fourth quarter. When that lead was like 13, Zach, people in the crowd were freaking out. It was like a 6-0 run. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like it got to five or seven. Like the freakout began really, really early. And for good reason. Like the fans knew what was coming, right? Like this huge shoe was going to drop and they were aware of it. And the energy in that building was so bad, Uh, like so quickly because just everybody knew they were going to have their heart broken. And, and I, I think it, that type of stuff extends 
to, to the public. I during game one, you know, I, I flipped on Twitter and, and um, you know, I think it was like four minutes into the to game one, and Paul George starts like zero for four, and like pandemic P is trending, like four minutes into that, game one. Wow, you know, pandemic and, P is is honestly, that's pretty good. It's a pretty yeah. good, it's a pretty good dig. It just is. And, and and so it's sort of like you, you know, and, and we've seen it. Obviously, um, I saw it. I, I didn't didn't watch Game Two live. I was in Phoenix covering Lakers Suns, and, and but like we're sitting there on press row, and you know there is like a glee isn't the right word, but like an oh my god, this is happening kind of excitement that comes from like and and you see it on Twitter, like people are firing off their jokes. Uh, people are like, oh my God, clips are going to clip or whatever, you know, whatever they're going to say. And, and people, people just take such joy in it. And, and I think it all sort of feeds into this thing where it's like Laker fans, um, Knicks fans, like I, I, well, Lakers fans for sure. It's like, you expect the best, right? Like the Warriors or the Lakers eliminate the Warriors and the, or they beat the, the Warriors in the playing tournament. And like my mentions immediately are filled with like Steph Curry photoshopped into a Lakers jersey. Right, like that's the way that Lakers fans process information. Clipper fans, it's like the tip happens, and it's like people are like, "I'm canceling season tickets." Like, why? Why, <laughs> why do I line up for this? And, and, and it, it, it is just, uh, man, it's it's weird, Zach. I mean, I know that doesn't help with like the current iterations. I mean, right? It's chemistry. It's roster building. It's I think some of it is having too many guys. Uh, I mean. I think they've got so many smart people that work for that organization. They've got an owner who cares, who wants to win, who's invested money and resources. I mean, like, like Zach, like they don't own their practice facility, right? Um, like I, I believe if I remember correctly now, maybe this has changed, that like that was a Sterling property that they have that they like kind of agreed to continue to lease. And I remember when they they did a big round of renovations, like seven figure renovations on it. And to a building they didn't own. And I remember a, a Clippers executive saying, like, yeah, it's like we just put rims on our rental car. You, you know, like, they, they, they yeah. want to win. They will invest money to win. They have done this. And here they are down 0-2 to a buzzsaw that they invited into their lives. It is well, and, unfathomable. And, and And for the most part, this front office under Lawrence Frank and Michael Winger has done – most things very, very right and very mm -hmm. smartly leading to the Kawhi PG thing, which I don't care what anyone says now. It was a coup and it was considered a coup at the time. And what yep. I wrote at the time, and this is what I had heard from a, another front office person, that it was a deal that could could come back to haunt them, but also one that they had no choice but to do. Because the whole yep. point of accumulating all these extra picks, you get one from Ole Harkless here, you get a couple for Tobias here. The whole point is to get guys like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. That's why you do that when you're in Los Angeles. If you're in Oklahoma City or Memphis or wherever, that's not the point of accumulating those picks, at least not in that way. Um, now, did and, and when those guys got there, remember, they were in a position of, it was almost process Sixers-y in which they weren't, they, they were in the hole assets-wise. Like they had lost picks in the Jeff Green deal and the Jared Dudley mm -hmm. salary dump. And so a lot of like the Blake Griffin trade and the Tobias Harris trade, a lot of that was, yeah, I don't know if we want to pay these guys their next contract and we're setting up for cap room, but some of it also was we need to start recouping assets to use down the line. And, like, they didn't get yeah. everything right. Yeah, they didn't yeah. get everything right. I was going to say, too, the other thing, too, was, like, and then they also, because they were sort of a veteran teams actor in that stretch, like, they drafted players and never played them either, right? Like, they didn't really develop anybody in-house. So, like, they were pretty 
until, you know, Shea Gilgis Alexander walks through the door, like they didn't really have a young future, right? I mean, Reggie Bullock is probably the best draft pick of the Doc Rivers era, you know, and he barely played for them during that stretch. Uh, and, and you're right. Like we talk about like what, like, you know, Lawrence and what Winger have done. I mean, you can, I've, I've, I've heard Clipper fans sort of complain, like it's indefensible that you draft Daniel or Turo instead of, Xavier instead of Xavier Tillman, like Xavier Tillman. I like how I was going to throw that on it. But like, um, I mean, is it that a, is that a, teams missing the early second round all the time? Like that's a dice throw. Um, you know what I mean? And like, they don't need, if Xavier Tillman was on the, the Clippers, he probably wouldn't play because they've got 12 rotation guys already. So well, that's right. I mean, you consider a nitpick, the cabin Gale pick, the Jerome Robinson pick and this and that, like the bottom line is their hit rate is what it is. And it, it's pretty good. And that trade, they just, I always thought the real pain of the Kawhi PG trade was not the picks. It was Shea. And yeah. as far as we all know that all that stuff was just non-negotiable. Sam Presti had them over a barrel. They got everything. And this is where we are. And, you know, I mean, there I, were voices I, inside that room that didn't want to do that trade. There were, I, I can say that, um, that there were because of Shea. There were people like, we don't want to trade Shea. Um, I don't think you can go to Steve Ballmer and say, we're going to keep Shea goes to Alexander. And that means we're not going to get Kawhi Leonard or Paul George. Now, look, who knows if they would have still gotten Kawhi Leonard too, right? Like it, it was, maybe it was a bluff. Maybe it wasn't. I, I don't, it's weird kind of what we know about Kawhi Leonard now, him, Standing off the ball watching LeBron James initiate offense for two seasons seems like I don't think that's something he would want to do. Um, but yeah, the what the what choice. is what what the what alternative alternative is he taking is a great is a great question. Maybe there isn't. And yeah, is he staying in Toronto? That doesn't seem Maybe. like it was a thing. I don't know. Um, yeah. So let's talk about this series. And and so here's some of the things that are going wrong in this series. If you want to talk about if you want to criticize their process, well, here's some things. Um, they're getting zero out of Kennard, who they traded for and paid a lot of money. Just mm-hmm. literally not playing. Um, Ibaka is clearly way south of 100% to the point that they barely played him in Game 2. I thought he actually looked okay in Game 2. Maybe he plays more in Game 3. Morris has been a disaster through two games. Yep. And look, I I was one of the I – can't, I can't lie. I liked the Marcus Morris trade for them. I thought he made a lot of sense in terms of they're building this team of big wings that can switch everything. Yeah, he's a ball stopper, I told myself, but he won't do that in the with the Clippers. He'll become a spot-up guy who abuses mismatches now and then. By the way, now if I see one more Marcus Morris 20-footer over Tim Hardaway Jr., I might <laughs> throw my laptop on the floor. If you have Tim yeah. Hardaway Jr. on you, be bigger than him and do something good with it. And they're getting nothing out of him. And so those things are hurting them. And look, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, 69 points on 26 of 43 shooting in Game 2. And you lose? You lose yeah. because the other guys got you nothing. Beverly is getting you nothing except trucked by Luka Doncic and embarrassed on national television with Luka Doncic screaming at his face up and down the floor. And your defense has been a complete tire fire. And really, the story of the series is going to be right now the Clippers, right? Because we're, the Clippers are staring into the abyss and all this, and it's fun, and everyone likes to make fun of the Clippers. The story of the series is Luka Doncic and, to a lesser extent, Tim Hardaway Jr. But Luka Doncic has completely torn them apart now for two playoff series and they've had no coherent answer for them for him and the biggest the, the story of game 2 was they had all of these breakdowns 75% of which did not involve Luka or 50% of which did not involve Luka 
just botched switches, miscommunications, not being on the same page. One guy switches, one guy doesn't. And then they look at each other. They're yelling at each other. They're pointing at each other. They look like a team that has too many voices in their head, too many game plans, too many set-specific schemes they're trying to do. And they just fell apart defensively. Luka is going to beat you here and there. You can't fall apart and give Josh Richardson a wide-open three. You can't fall apart and give Porzingis two dunks. You can't fall apart and give you know, uh, Tim Hardaway a wide open three because you miscommunicate. Those are the things you can't do. And that's the biggest problem is that Luca has them spooked and they're playing horrible defense. Yeah, no, he is like completely like um, watching, like just watching them just crumble in, in these situations, right? It's like, it's, it's a stress test, right, Zach? And, and it, it that is what he is doing to the Clippers defense. And they are they are failing miserably. Um, it's like just tapping on a piece of glass and it just shatters. The um, you, you know they're arguing with each other into timeouts and stuff like that. I, I look, it's part of it is I think continuity. Um, again, that down the stretch Kawhi Leonard wasn't playing for a while and and they were trying to figure things out. But but hearing you talk about it, the thing that that stands out to me again is that they just they do have a lot of guys. And, you know, Marcus Morris on Tim Hardaway should be a plus a plus matchup for them, right? Like, go be bigger, like, and throw the ball in the post and, and let it work. Um, the problem is, is, like, they create so many of those mismatches that at times, like, it takes them out of their own flow. I, I think that's one thing. They, ha- they have no they have no flow. They have you know no what flow. I, I said this before, and I wrote it again in my notes for game two. They're starting to remind me of the Heat the first year the Heatles were together. In this sense, that team would come out of a timeout and run this like absolutely glorious set involving all their guys doing stuff. And then after that, just run the most predictable ISO stuff in the world. Now you have LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. That's fine. Uh, The Clippers come out of a timeout. They run a pick and roll and then it becomes a pin down and this guy's flying over here. And then it lasts for one possession. And then they just become sort of the same Clippers, which by the way, offensively has still been good enough to win the series. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. And look, and their offense is what it is. Like they shoot a ton of jump shots. Um, you know, they don't get to the line enough and stuff like that. One name we didn't mention too, right? Like Avica Zubats, I think, had like worked himself into actually like a position of of strength within the organization on a great contract, an ascending and so, player. By, and by the way, we, we should have mentioned that trade in in part of the like Huge things, they, things they got right, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, that trade for Mike Muscala is like a hilarious sort of like, I mean, that was like, that was down the hall robbery, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, but like, you know, Zubats is like all of a sudden, like each one of his feet have gained like 300 pounds in this series. Like he can't move. And, you know, he's been such an important defender for them this season. Uh, his ascension in the starting lineup kind of coincided with Serge Ibaka's injury. And like it put Serge's role into sort of flux, which, you know, um, it's funny. Uh, it's a quick sidetrack. I remember, Zach, in free agency, right, like two of the flashiest moves that happened um, that were going to, like, move the needle were the Lakers signing Montrez Harrell and the Clippers then replacing Montrez Harrell with Serge Ibaka. Uh, and, and as we are here in the playoffs, like, neither of those things have mattered even a little bit. You have Montrez Harrell taking, you know, a DNP in game two and Serge Ibaka playing six minutes. Uh, it's just sort of like, you know, you make plans and what, like God laughs. Is that, is that what they say? Like sort of like, and, and that's, I think kind of what's happened with these teams in some ways, but the, the, the Clipper thing is just, it, it, it is such an interesting dilemma that they face because not only, again, not only do they have to solve the Mavericks, they have to listen to people 
on TV now saying like, if you lose this series, maybe you should move to Seattle. Like, like, th- like those are like kind of the stakes Ooh. that happen. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like that's what gets introduced is that because of their, their standing in this city, because of the fact that they have somehow entered this weird territory where they are a bigger story nationally than they are locally, which is bizarre. And I've lived that for sure. Having covering this team, like where, you know, you write stories and you hear from people in New York and, and, you know, in Chicago who want to talk about the, the superstars on the Clippers, but in LA, you know, Chris Paul's on the Jumbotron at a Dodger game and gets booed. Um, or, you know, Nick Young um, rides the Zamboni at a LA Kings game and it is like, you know, the second coming. It, 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 I mean, that's how it sort of feels in the city at times. Um, and look, there are Clipper fans here and there are a lot of them and they're passionate and they're all freaking out right now. Um, like that's sort of where they're at, but you know, it, it is the stakes for them just always seem so high because they're not just playing to win a series. They're like playing for legitimacy. And guess what? If they come back and win the series, which I think, it, I, I don't think is like impossible. Um, if they come back no. and win the, if they come back and win the series, they're going to have to go through it all again in the second round because they've never been to a conference final. And that's, then that'll be, re- and then that's going to be reintroduced. Look, they have the talent to win four out of five. There's no question about that. Um, mm-hmm. I thought offensively they did a lot of stuff right in game two, like the way they attacked Porzingis, dropping back on the pick and roll, Paul George over and over again. They had, they've made yeah. Luca work on defense. Rondo comes in the game, and I like that Rondo kind of gets their ass in gear and pace a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about Rondo's minutes later. It's just defensively, and, and I talked after game one with Tim McMahon about, you know, what could they do with Luca? And there's no great answer to that question. Clearly in game two, they decided we're going to be a little bit more conservative and try and stick with him without switching and force him to make long twos. And guess what? Made a bunch of long twos. And you can try all these things. None of them are going to work consistently. He's the one of the two or three best problem solvers in the NBA. If he sees a defense once, he's going to figure it out. You just have to mix it up and hope for the best. And young Kawhi probably could have taken this matchup for 35 minutes a game. I think that's one of the big takeaways from this series is Kawhi is their best option. He's better than Paul George on Luka. He's way better than Marcus Morris, who cannot stay in front of him. One, They don't even need a screen for him to beat Marcus yeah. Morris. He's too big for the guards. And I've said over and over again, Luka's development as a post player has been one of the under-discussed big things of this season. It has played out here. Kawhi is their best option. It's just too much for him to do it, I think, for a whole game and score 41 points and do all the stuff yeah. that they need him to do because they don't have great playmaking other than Rondo on the team. Well, and look, right? Like, are there, are, do you have, does Ty Lue have like the moves two, three, four, and five offensively to counteract the fact if you say to, to Kawhi, if you kind of give him the honest assignment, right? That Nick Nurse did um, after going down 2 0 to the Bucks in 2018, right? 2019? However, oh, that was like a thousand years ago. Um, yeah. Like, one plague and it's one plague and two years ago. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you, you know, but look, I also think, too, that Giannis is different than Luca in the sense that, like, you kind of know that Giannis is going to be pretty north-south. Luca is all directions at all times. I mean, hitting just like that one-footed runner is like the type of shot that, like, you see a guy shoot at, at Lifetime Fitness in, like, those summer videos. And, and we all freak out, like, oh, like, James Harden's going to add this to his repertoire. Like, is he going to break basketball? And it's like, no way he'll ever really do that. He doesn't a preseason game. He misses. We all laugh. Like, Luca's hitting these shots in the playoffs. 
right now. And, and look, I do think what Ty Lue said is sort of like, I mean, it sounds ridiculous where it's like, all right, well, like we're going to see if you can still do it. I, I think them shooting 60% from three, I think what Tim Hardaway's doing, um, which has been just, he has destroyed the Clippers this year. I think I texted you, right? Like in the five games against him this year, Tim Hardaway's plus 74 or something like he's, that. He's he's scored 49 points on 17 of 27 shooting, 11 of 17 on threes <laughs> in, this, in this series. Yeah, and he did in the regular season. I mean, like he is, they, they lose him and it is a huge problem and they need like, they will not win the series. They will not win games if they cannot kind of corral some of these other guys. But uh, but, but everyone, this is what everyone says. You know, just take the ball out of Lucas' hands, make the other guys do it. Like, this is an NBA team. Now, you can do – could you do that 5% more? Sure. Like, ideally, your ideal defense is Luka takes a lot of long twos and some step-back threes and you shrug your shoulders if he beats you over your best defenders, not over Zubats, right? They, uh, mm-hmm. even And some over Zubats on switches. And other than that, you trap him here and there, and it and you, it works. And the ball gets directed to exactly the right guy at exactly the right time with exactly the right amount of time on the shot clock. Like, that's not real life, though. If you just trap Luka 50 times, Tim Hardaway is going to make practice shot three-pointers. Maxi Kleba is going to make practice. Chris Sapsworth is going to make dunks. Like, that's what's going to happen. And they're going to shoot layups, too, because like it, with the state of the Clippers' defense right now, too, it's not like I trust this team to be making three, four, five rotations either, Zach, right? Like, you've seen this. Like, they are literally it, – it's like three stooges at times, like where they, like, run into each other and, like, guys are left shrugging their shoulders. Like, aren't you supposed Ooh. to be here? Three sto- I say Keystone Cops for that. You say Three Ooh. Stooges, neither of which is a reference that Tyler, anyone over Tyler like stuff. 75 years old has actually seen on television <laughs> or in the movies. Yeah, right. Man, those Keystone Cops. Love those Keystone Cops, like, eh? Hey, switch, eh? Look at Andres, eh? Uh, no, yeah, I think it's uh, – I, I don't know that it's a solvable problem. I just – I cannot and, – and, like, we probably shouldn't spend too much time on this because it, it happened. You can't go back. Well, it's, it's either this like, or fake Paul George trades, Dan. That's all I got left. Okay, okay well, let's, no, well, I don't want to do wanna, that yet. I don't want to do that yet. But I want to say, though, I mean, look, like, here's the other thing, too, that's sort of incomprehensible about kind of the road they walked is that, like, they've actually played Portland really well this year. And, um, you know, I mentioned, like, again, plus minus not perfect, but, like, uh, Damian Lillard played two games against the Clippers, minus 33 in those two games. Like, they actually defend Dame Lillard pretty well. Um, you know, they have sort of, like, the size and the quickness and the versatility. And, and, look, Portland being a little more traditional, I think, kind of lends itself to Zubats um, being a, a little more comfortable, and, and they've got size. It, it's just like, the, Zach, they chose this problem. Well, do you know the difference? This was the, choose your, this was the choose your own adventure, and it was like walk down the, the road with the lights on, and then the idyllic neighborhood or like walk through the fires of hell and they signed up for hell. Well, you know, sometimes you get, uh, there's no good reason for it. The difference between, <laughs> by the way, you brought up there, you brought up Giannis and you brought up Dame. Yeah. And those are great players. Both mm-hmm. made my first team all NBA ballot this year as did Luca over Kawhi. Um, the difference between Luca and those guys is not, is, is, is playmaking. Luca is a god playmaker. Playmaking yep. is what turns someone into a god in basketball. And Luca is a god level playmaker. And he's going to make every right pass. He's going to sniff out every move ahead of time. And he's going to beat you and punish you for it with his passing. And the Clippers don't have playmaking like that. And have it for two years. Have it for two and, years. And and they know it. And they know it, Zach. And it's like 
it's they've talked, you know, you've heard people around the league. I'm sure you've heard, you've talked to the same people about this too, where it's like how much like they could, they could use a Kyle Lowry type, right? Like that was like a name that came up a ton in sort of their team building. Right. And it's, and this was sort of the interesting thing. I think they went through last year. Right. Which is like, when you say Kyle Lowry type, like, what do you mean? You mean like you want toughness, leadership, unselfishness, like who can play off of, you know, ball dominant players, but who can also like get you into stuff. And well, like that list of point guards in this league um, is short who kind of play like that. And, and, you know, when you start to work down that list, like it's not that long until like you talk yourself into Patrick Beverly doing some of those things. And most of those players make 25 to $30 million a year. And yeah. you just, it's not that easy to trade for those guys. Let's talk about Patrick Beverly because I thought, and I said this on the podcast, I thought there was a pretty good chance Reggie Jackson was going to remain the starter after yeah. Patrick Beverly came back. That hasn't come to pass. I don't, I don't know that there's really a move that Clippers can – I mean, clearly they're going to try adjustments. We'll see more Marcus Morris at center. Terrence Mann has probably earned a look, a real look and not just a the game's out of hand look in game three. I just don't know what Beverly is really bringing to this series because his jump shot is too slow. The Mavs are not guarding him at all. Like, they're treating him like a complete non-shooter off the ball. And defensively, I, I mean, Luka's just picking on him. I, I mean, yeah. it, it helps. He's a good defender away from the ball. He can guard Tim Hardaway types and all this. But, you know, I but I just don't know. I, I thought Rondo might play more just because of his playmaking. Maybe he will. I was surprised that Rondo was on the bench for so long at the end of um, of Game 2, even though they were making a run with that group. I, I mean, that was in talking to people in the aftermath of Game 2 was sort of like the first sort of adjustment in my mind was like, how do you get more Rondo on the court? Um and that doesn't help you a ton defensively, but it's an attitude. It's a calm. It is a um, – he just – he knows how to play. What I and said I, when they got him was – it was clear the first couple games. You don't realize the passes that are not being made until yeah. you get a guy who makes them. And, like, yeah. that was – now, he's got all sorts of other limitations, and he was part of some of the defensive breakdowns in game two, but he does add playmaking and pace that they need. And I think he's a voice too, honestly. Like this was like that's why I like that trade for them so much. Um at, at the time was that it was like they were looking for somebody who could who could steady the ship and provide some sort of leadership. And then in addition to that, who could initiate offense for other people. And, and look, yeah, he's not the defender he used to be, but he is still a tremendously smart player. And 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 when you watch like to me, when I watch this series, like I feel like the Clippers like their wits are being tested. Like constantly, right? It's not just a matter of scheme; it's problem solving on the fly. And I think Rondo's pretty good at that. That seems like an adjustment um, that's out there. I wonder if you could sort of then, like, you know, kind of pair Pat Bev uh, in the Jalen Brunson minutes a little bit, and, and that seems like a little bit more of a natural type of a matchup for him. Well, like, that, that's the other. The number one thing they've got to do is win the minutes. Luca is on the bench, and so far. They're, the Mavs are minus six in 17 minutes without Luka. I think they game two was pretty even, if not if not plus yeah. for the Mavs. Like the Clippers have to win those minutes. They just have to, unless they just get preposterously hot in the other minutes and whatever. But to to the point about the Brunson minutes, they just they just have to win the game when Luka's not when not on the floor. Yeah, and, and then you know I I mean it seems like again like Abaka should be sort of the answer in some of this stuff, Zach. But like this is a guy who's barely played for the last three months. You know, and, and um, was involved I, again. Um, you know, I was talking to Andrew Greif, um, our, our Clippers beat writer, uh, you know, who was like, 
you, you know, you watch that argument between him. I think it was him and Rondo uh, during game two um, after a blown assignment. And it's just like this team isn't connected. And, and what Dallas does is they force your because of Lucas passing and Lucas playmaking, um, they force you to be really, really connected. And uh, it, it is it is I use the word stress test like that's what it is. And you have to be together on that stuff. And it's like I'm stunned. I would say more Batum to Zach seems like something. I, I go I go hot and cold on Batum. I've had a lot of people suggest to me the last few days that they need more Batum. You know, he's played pretty well. And again, he allows them to be more switchy and stuff. I I, I guess, I guess. I just I go hot. Is this part of is this part of the problem, by the way, too, is that like that like they have like a lot of like C minus to like B minus type solutions to like work through? Like it's not like it's like one or two or three adjust like it's like maybe we do more of this. Maybe we do more Reggie Jackson and set. like because like they have this 11, 12 man depth. Terrence Mann. I mean, like Luke Kennard is like not going to be a factor in this series, um, which is a, a fascinating sort of like, you know, obviously the front office valued him. Um, it seems like the coaching staff doesn't. And like you have this conundrum. I know I talked to people around the league about Luke Kennard who like loved that signing because they thought what the Clippers would do is they would unleash him as more of a playmaker is that that Luke I think that's I think that's what the Clippers thought the Clippers would do um, and yeah and that never materialized I know he went through some stuff early in the season with some confidence and and getting healthy and stuff like that but I mean he's not a factor in this series uh I really like Terrence Mann I think he's someone who like you said uh his versatility has probably earned him the right to be on the court a little bit and he competes and stuff like that but like this is you were working through 13 14 permutations on this stuff like and it's so it it's just going to comp it's just more complication honestly it's like what i'm sitting here thinking about it and it's like this is what happens when you're down 0-2 in a situation where like i mean you have to split those games you just have to if you're not going to be 2-0 um Ugh. zooming out the number one thing they have to do to get back in the series is as close to zero breakdowns involving non-Luka humans as possible on defense. If you clean up all of that, you take 15 points off the scoreboard and you make the Mavs earn it. Not yeah. on, Honestly, it's not the right way. You just don't give them bas- You don't give them the game. That gives you a chance. Look, again, I, I don't know what their odds are. They, I have enough respect for their talent that coming back from 2-0 having lost the two games at home. I don't know. What do they have? A 25% chance, 30% chance, 20% chance. They have a chance, 15, whatever it is. But if they don't, and they're going into this offseason, coming off a first-round loss, they don't have a lot of options whether or not Kawhi stays or not. And I think everyone has sort of agreed he's more likely to stay. Mm-hmm. You're staring at you're staring at a not-great situation for potentially a very, very long time, which is the last thing any – the last thing – the Clippers above all franchises need is to be in a not great situation for a very long time. Yeah. Mediocrity. And it's not, it's not that bad. Cause Kawhi and PG are like 30. They're still really, really good. Even if you end up having to trade both of them, they, they it's not like they're Kevin love level trade value. You could get like at least net neutral for PG better than that for Kawhi. Like even they, they it's not that bad, but it's not great. Well, it's like, you, you know, again, it's like, what's your stomach for being like sort of competitive. Right. And this was um, kind of what happened like through the last iteration of this team, right? The last few years of like sort of the, 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 the Chris Blake, DeAndre sort of core where it's like you spend two seasons lying to yourself about how good you are. 
And, and, and that's what happened in those years. And, and those were not, not happy years, Zach, <laughs> around that team. Like everybody was pretty miserable because I think at, at their core, everybody knew they weren't good enough. And, you, you know, I think when you have Kawhi Leonard and you have Paul George, um, you, you feel like you should be in an echelon of contender. And, and, and obviously I think if, if this ends the way it probably will in this postseason, um, you, you start to look around. I mean, you, you fired the coach last year, right? So you're, you're, you're not going to probably make that change again, I would say. I think that seems pretty unlikely. Um, we talked about, I mean, do, do you could maybe make some adjustments and try to get some fresh eyes in the front office, but like they've got to, like, ever, like if they fire any of those guys, like they're going to go get hired somewhere else. Like they've all turned down jobs to, to be there, right? Like Trent Redden has turned down jobs to, to, to remain with the Clippers and gotten raises. Mark Hughes has interviewed for jobs. Uh, Michael Winger has turned down other opportunities to stay with the Clippers. Like, so I, I don't know that you're going to find new, <laughs> you're going to upgrade there. That seems difficult. Um, and I don't even know what that looks like because then you're going to hire someone else and you, you know, a, a blow it up rebuild seems not palatable for Steve Ballmer for anybody and also not necessary. It's just, it's hard to improve on the margins when, when you're going to be as capped out as they are and you have no draft picks. It's just hard to get a little bit better. So do you just kind of hope that you get lucky? I, I, I don't know what it is, Zach. I, I mean, it, it was fun when, when you asked me to come up with like fake Paul George trades, like that was interesting. Um, but it does sort of like you're, it feel like you're changing in a dollar for like four quarters a little bit. Like, I don't know that you're ever really like altering the amount of money you have in your hand. Yeah. I'm not ready to quite go through the fake Paul George trade yet. I want to see how this team shows <laughs> up in, in game three in Dallas, um, whether they fight, what happens if the Mavs are up eight at halftime, you know, all that stuff. I'm interested yeah. to see what this team has in them. Uh, Dan Wojcicki, you can you can read and listen to him at the LA Times. He has a newsletter too. It's always good to see you. I'm going to be in Los Angeles in ten days. I don't know if there'll be any basketball games for us to go to, but maybe yeah. I'll see you in Los Angeles. I know, yeah, right. If it's no basketball, Zach, you can come on over and we can have that uh, that C plus dad beer.